Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mada, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. In 1515, Pope Leo X tried to cancel the Bible. Well, Gutenberg's Bible, anyway. And it's, it's hard to imagine now, but back then, printed books were considered a threat. Literacy among the wider population could undermine the influence of the church, and in all, Gutenberg produced about 180 copies of his Bible, and today, 280 characters on Twitter is how you change the world. So what room is there for the study of letters? And what about the original tweet, short fiction? My guest, Jim Lambert, spent a career in law before putting his shoulder into the wheel of the metaverse and starting to write short fiction himself. Jim took creative writing courses with the late, great Ernest Gaines at UL and published his first compilation of short stories, Sub Rosa, in 2021. He specializes in a kind of hidden history, finding nuggets of underdocumented history and spinning them into fictionalized narratives. Jim is a is also a spiritual mentor for inmates at Louisiana's Angola Prison. Jim Lambert, welcome down to lunch. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Very excited to have this uh, time in person. Uh, out to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> well appointed. Speaking of second acts, adult enrollment has boomed at UL Lafayette, according to my next guest, Jordan Kelman, dean of UL's College of Liberal Arts. A key component of that is the Complete LA program that gives discounted tuition to adults looking to finish their degrees. Those late bloomers are attending an institution rising in prominence. UL, as you may have heard, attained R1 status, recognizing it as a top research university. Dr. Kelman holds a PhD in the history of science and French history and has served as liberal arts dean since 2012. Jordan Kelman, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. It's great to be here, Christian. So, Jim, I, I noticed you're, you published your first book through Balboa Press, which is, as I understand it, kind of a self-publishing platform, kind of hybrid sort of thing, right, where you you sign up with them and they kind of help you through the process. So, so once you get that hard copy in hand, though, right, I mean, how do you get out there and start to sell it? Well, you... Send it to your friends. <laughs> Facebook has helped. I've done a, a number of uh, podcasts, radio interviews. Um, my goal with the book was to do something creative. After many decades of kind of pragmatic thought, uh, and then having the pleasure of studying under Ernest Gaines and having the aspiration to, to be a writer, and particularly short stories, um, you know, when I retired, it was now or never. Either you're going to do it, you're going to get an editor, you're going to do it right, you're going to get a proofreader and a, and a publisher, and, and you're going to put this thing out. And um, it's been a, a lot of fun. Balboa is a fantastic company, um, and they arrange for everything. And hmm. uh, it's kind of a, what I would call a high-end self-publishing but they do the layouts, a super professional job, and a very reasonable price, I might add. So, I, look, we're here to talk about you, but I am curious about that. I mean, I, I did a little bit of Googling about Balboa and kind of maybe what sets it apart, because, I mean, self-publishing is a pretty big industry. It's getting out there, um, and, and it struck me that they do more than sort of these other services. Like, you know, I even kind of wondered, should I call it self-publishing or not? Because it seemed like it did more than what, you know, what I might do, just like take something and put it on Amazon and an ebook or something like that, which clearly this is a, a cut above that. I mean, how does it work? 
Well, you call them, uh, you talk to them, uh, they tell you what they can do, uh, and you make a decision on what you want. I mean, it's, it, it is a kind of an a la carte type of uh, situation, but uh, for somebody who doesn't want to be involved in the mechanics of actually putting a book together, you know, laying it out, uh, you know, I selected the font and everything, but, you know, I was very happy with uh, how they, you know, laid everything out and uh, arranged everything and then, of course, put it on all the platforms, hmm. you know. I didn't want to do that. I want to write and talk about writing. And uh, so for somebody like me uh, who and is willing to spend a, a modest amount of money, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a, a very good uh, way to put a book out there. Jordan, I, uh, I studied philosophy in college and the trope back then was, well, you can always be a lawyer. Uh, and, I, and I guess the idea was that, you know, the value uh, in a liberal arts degree, right, this is like 2006 when I graduated college, that it would somehow apply to some career, right? And certainly universities have become more and more streamlined in preparing us to work, right? Maybe not so much get into study. So I guess just in a, in a nutshell, I know it's a big question. I mean, how does a liberal arts degree fit into that today? Are we still kind of telling people, hey, you know, this is a great interdisciplinary thing and you can apply it to different degrees? Or are we trying to you know, urge people to study philosophy and become philosophers or podcast hosts? That is a great question, Christian. And my answer would be both. So to your uh, specific question and your own degree, congratulations <laughs> on studying philosophy. It's yeah. a great choice. Um, when we study nationally the lifetime earnings of college graduates, uh, liberal arts graduates actually show up uh, very much in, in a strong place near the center of, of the curve. And interestingly enough, philosophy is at the very top of okay. the liberal arts. So over a lifetime, this was a study from two or three years ago, over a lifetime, the average income of a philosophy graduate is $104,000 a year, which is almost at the top of the entire university hierarchy. So Nobody basically, called me about this, by yeah, the way, because my, my salary does you not the factor memo. into that. Okay, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Basically, you have to be an aeronautical engineer to earn more over a lifetime <laughs> than somebody who holds a philosophy degree. Why is that? Because philosophy programs teach people how to think. They teach people how to think very rigorously and carefully. And those are extremely valuable skills hmm. in the workplace. So and being able to analyze uh, difficult problems and understand complex human situations and complex cognitive situations are extremely valuable skills no matter what field or discipline you go into. Mm -hmm. And that applies to some extent to all of the liberal arts majors. Um, and we find our job placement rates very competitive. But again, the biggest payoff comes in lifetime average earnings because people who go into professions with those particular skills tend to rise. Hmm. Who gets promoted? The people who understand how to take a complex situation with a lot of unknowns and a lot of human factors and negotiate it carefully, respectfully, ambitiously, uh, with an eye on the goal and the ability to bring people into the solution, to the discussion, um, and to persuade them of the, the value of a solution. These are all skills that 
are incredibly valuable in almost any career that people have out there. And we see that confirmed in the numbers. Hmm. Now, I said both. So it's also true that in the liberal arts, we are now also focusing uh, in addition to teaching these basic skills that we've always taught, and by the way, which have made uh, a liberal arts degree the most uh, valuable and certain path to social mobility uh, that the world has ever has ever found uh, over centuries. But in addition to those that we've always done, uh, we're also introducing lots of um, much more mundane kinds of uh, workforce training that are extremely important too, and where we have lots of students who are looking to get specific um, workforce and professional skills. Mm -hmm. And we have lots of disciplines that are teaching those too, more than ever. Criminal justice is a good example, sure. psychology, speech pathology, these are definitely fields that are training people for specific careers. Jim, this raises a very important question to me. Jim, what did you study in college? I was a speech communication um, you know, major as undergraduate and um, I'll never forget uh, talking with one of, you know, when I was at LSU I talked to one of the graduate students and uh, he was going back to to teach at some college and uh, I said, what are you going to make? Well, he told me, and I'm like, oh, my God, I, I need to go to law school. <laughs> I really, you know, I had no idea. I looked at my professor, who I admired so much, and uh, I thought, well, maybe he can, you know, he, he teaches in the morning and he plays tennis in the afternoon. It must be a fun job to be, uh, you know, in, in the teaching at a university. And I had no idea of the rigor and the demands and sadly, you know, at least on an entry level, the salary. And so uh, I decided to go to law school. Hmm. And uh, it was uh, somewhat a practical thing, like Jordan says. I wanted something specific. I wanted something uh, that I could uh, have a day job. In America, you know, if you're an artist, you better have a day job, too. <laughs> you know, if you're, whether it's a, uh, you're a musician or a visual artist or a writer, you should. You know, America, sadly, is about money. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hate to say it. And, uh, but, you know, fundamentally, we are a capitalist culture. And so, uh, you know, I had a day job for 40 years, and now I can be a, a creative person. Yeah. You know? is, is, it, is it fair to say, like, I mean, you said earlier that, that the book, right, mm -hmm. and, and, your, and your turn to, to, to fiction was more about sort of satisfying creative pursuit, you know, maybe yes. less, less so than an economic pursuit right oh, most definitely most definitely it's not an economic pursuit at all I mean it is strictly I wanted to write some stories particularly about my home you know section of the state and uh, you know the, the soul of, the, of southern culture you know mm -hmm. I, you know I love southern gothic I love uh, you know so many I mean Ernie Gaines is uh, short story collection bloodlines one of the finest in american literature and uh so there were a lot of aspirational people in my life that i looked at and i said i'd like to do something like that i know i'm, I'm not going to liken myself to these greats but uh i just wanted to put it out there and it's been very well received i got a very good review in kirkus literary reviews which is a really legit uh agency and you know a number of my friends at UL, even though they're my friends, they're literary professors, and yeah. they, they tell me it was good. So, yeah. you know, uh, 
You know, it was it was something I wanted to do simply for the act of creating. Sure. Uh, so, Gwen, congratulations on the good reviews. And Jordan, I, I, you know, one one thing I hear in in Jim's story, right, is something he sort of comes back to this discipline later in life, and it's sort of a, a, an act of personal enrichment, right? And and I'm thinking about these folks that are kind of coming back to school and, and sort of the the, the to, to complete, right? These are not folks though that are coming back to school because they're seeing something missing in their lives and they're trying to fill a hole, right? Like this is more, I would presume people who are trying to finish a degree because it would make their lives more gainful, right? I mean, or, or, or do I have it wrong? Actually, I think you, you get both and you definitely get um, a lot of people in this population who want to do it uh, to c- confirm something that they started and to be able to say that they finished it. And because it was something that they loved and had to pull away from for various practical reasons uh, and want to come back. Actually, one of the primary reasons that we find people, adults, in this situation with some college and no degree and not uh, having returned to college is that they came to a certain point in their careers where they realized it wouldn't make any difference. Hmm. They pursued opportunities and they find themselves um, in a gainful profession in the workplace and they didn't need to go back and get a degree. So many people there are doing it for personal reasons, mm. although certainly plenty of them see it as a career boosting or a salary boosting opportunity. Yeah, you know, I, I think often I had a number of friends that have gone on and you know received doctorates, and one friend of mine who was teaching in Turkey for a while during the pandemic, and he came home, and he was like struggling to break into you know American academia, which is where he wanted to be because he's from the U.S. Right? He didn't want to stay in Turkey forever, and he was like, "Screw it, I'm going to learn how to code." Right? And that's what he did. And and, and, I, and I guess it has me curious. I mean, I think a lot of times we have this impression that we go to college, we study something in the liberal arts. Perhaps I don't mean to pick on liberal arts specifically, but anything that might lead you on an academic career path. I mean, so what kind of guidance does the university sort of offer in a person who's trying to try to figure out, like, am I studying philosophy because I want to be a philosopher and teach philosophy and study philosophy, or am I doing this because I want to enter the workforce? I mean, how do you help people make those decisions? Even at 21 years old, that can seem pretty terrifying. Uh I guess you could see it as terrifying, but we see it in a very positive light. I mean, these are decisions that offer nothing but potential. Mm. And uh, I think many, many of our students, including some of the returning adult students, are there because they love what they do. They love the things that they're studying. They're interested in it. And they assume that it will lead to something positive. Mm. And often it does. Uh, I, always it does. Often it, it leads to to something, you know, extremely remunerative. Some of the first returning adult students that we had in the state when this program started were people at the end of their lives. We had people returning to get a degree who were 80, 85 years old, mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, they were first-generation college students. Wow. And this was a big deal in their lives and in their families. You have the whole family there at graduation crying as this person walks across the stage. Mm-hmm. This is not about money in, in, in every case, yeah. uh, though certainly it can be important. 
You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. I'm talking with UL's Dean of the College of Liberal Arts, Dr. Jordan Kelman, and Jim Lambert, author of the short fiction collection Sub Rosa. Jim, I, not to pick on your own college career, you said you studied speech and communications. You look at I mean, did your parents say at this time, like, what are you going to do with that? I mean, like, I just feel like that, that may be the, the, the thing that looms over these conversations even today. I mean, uh, you know, uh, well, you're going to go and study what? Well, how are you going to make money doing that? Did your parents give you that? No, my parents were, they grew up in the Depression, World War II. They were thrilled just to have someone go to college. You see, that was at a time where many of our, my parents' generation maybe went to the college on the GI Bill or whatever, things like that. Uh, So they were just thrilled that I was in school. speech and doing well. I was an old debater mm-hmm. in high school and college. I, the, the first uh, college I went to, I had a debate scholarship there. I actually went to a little religious college, Louisiana College. It was mm-hmm. a Baptist school, and mainly because they gave me a full-ride scholarship, you know, and uh, back in those times, you could go to college, get a few scholarships, work, and not incur giant student debt, which I wanted to avoid at all costs, even back then. Mm -hmm. And so um, very, very blessed. I mean, when I went to law school, my law school tuition was $255 a semester. Mm -hmm. You know, that is incredible support by the state of Louisiana. And it was only because of that I was able to attain a degree like this. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of owe my whole life to that support of our culture and our government, you know, that gave two students during that time. Mm-hmm. You know, Jim, one of, the, um, one of the amazing things about the American university experience is that it's really set up to guide a young person through figuring out what they want to do with their lives, which is often a process that takes people into their early 20s and sometimes later. I think there's a, there's a myth out there that people make a decision about what they're going to do and they pick that major and that's it. That's the major they're training for and that's the career that they're training for. That's actually rarely true, and it's getting less and less true now. Uh, our young people today are going to cycle through, on average, by the latest study, 13 different jobs, completely different jobs through the course of their lives. Wow. So the old model of sort of getting the solid job straight out of college and uh, retiring out of that same job at the end of your life is almost never the case hmm. today. So every summer I ask parents uh, at the orientations, how many of them knew when they were 17 or 18 what they were going to be when they grew up and that that's actually turned out to be true. And in a room full of uh, parents, there's usually about one out of 20 who will raise their hand and say, you know, I knew it, I majored in it, I got the career in it, I'm in it, and, and that's it. And that's wonderful. That's a great outcome. But most people don't actually follow a linear path like that. And we're extremely lucky in the United States to have this system that's really set up that way to give young people an opportunity to explore and find out what their strengths are and find out what really resonates deeply with them. And we have, because of that, a much, much higher rate of people getting into careers that they love, careers that fit them, that they're good at. So 
Jim's a perfect example of, <laughs> of all of this. But there's millions right. of I, such examples. But it strikes me there's a bit of a contradiction here, too, though, right? And maybe this is not quite in the... the the, the university level, but I think of all of these, you know, uh, secondary school type programs where they're already kind of saying, look, you could choose a path in STEM today, right? And here's your education. You can go and get, uh, you know, we're going to prepare you to, to be a pre-med, you know, pre-med student at like 15. And because I'm one of those people that you're describing, right? Like I got my major in philosophy. My minor was in journalism and I went as far away from journalism I could for about a decade before I landed back in it. But it still feels like in a lot of ways we have a system that basically tries to tell you, well, you got to pick something now or get off the boat. I mean, I, maybe, look, I've been out of college for about 15 years. So, I mean, there, that could be a bit of <laughs> me not understanding what's happening. But do, do, do we not see other signals in the world that aren't telling people, hey, you, you need to figure this out now or you're going to be left on the street? Well, one thing I want to, I've been wanting to ask Jordan to comment on, because Jordan, uh, and I'm told this by your good friend, Dennis Vitrella, he tells me all about your interesting background, but Jordan uh, was, a, I believe, a French literature, uh, French history, French history uh, graduate student, and um, you studied in Paris. He, I think he was such an exceptional student. He had, he was allowed to enroll in multiple universities in Paris, if I'm not mistaken. But the French system, I've been told back in the long ago that ask students to decide when they're 15 or 14 which way are you going to go are you going to go the vocational route are you going to go the academic route am i right is you that, are correct so would you elaborate on that a well bit? and what france is not exceptional in that sense the assumption through most of the industrialized world is that people will choose at a much younger age <laughs> than we would assume and it depends. I mean, it's not a monolith anywhere, and you certainly have people changing tracks at ages beyond that. But the system is certainly set up in France to take some people and start putting them on a specific track starting uh, around the age of, of 14. Uh, and I actually know that because I happened to go to school in France for a year when I was 14. Wow. And I saw some of my peers, you know, were kids. This is middle school. Uh, being tracked. Now, actually, since then, we've developed more of a system of starting to do that in the States than we had at the time mm. because we have, to, to some extent, bought into the value of this. And it certainly does have uh, a certain value for some people. Um, so now in high schools, we have a much more uh, developed track system with AP courses and uh, dual enrollment courses uh, and separate math courses and science courses for people who are thinking about pursuing medical degrees or science careers, that kind of thing. Uh, and that certainly serves a purpose. But I really, really hope that we don't give up the flexibility that we do have built into our university system in this country because, and you see it in France, and any French person will tell you, and you see it in a lot of other countries too, you have lots and lots of people who are stuck in careers in those countries that they aren't really happy about as adults. Hmm. It's something that made sense at a certain point in their lives, and once they got on that track, it was very difficult to get off, and they can be stuck counting down the years hmm. until it's over, 
And I think we take for granted in the United States that it's all sort of a big smorgasbord and you can always reinvent yourself. It's part of our national myth, you know. Mm -hmm. You can reinvent yourself at almost any point in life. Uh, and, and that serves us very, very well in a lot of practical ways. Jim, you come to your career now in, in writing with the ability to be flexible. You could do anything you want. Why short fiction? I fell in love with short fiction, um, taking courses under Ernest Gaines, and then ran across this writer, Richard Ford, who's uh, both a novelist and short story writer, and then he led me to Raymond Carver. And these, you know, I just fell in love with the whole idea of, you know, I think short fiction should be a dominant literary genre today because of the time demands on people. You know, you can finish a short story in 45 minutes and go to sleep at night, you know. Uh, whereas novels, which of course are the dominant literary form, are, they're great. But um, I don't know, I've always been drawn to this idea of a, a maybe a tightly crafted story that can wrap up in you know 15 or 20 pages. I've also, as you mentioned, uh, drawn to tell the story of our, our land uh, that's, that's not taught in schools. You know, the history of racial violence, for example, in, that occurred in my home area of central Louisiana that I only found out as an adult, you know, that were really shocking, shocking things that weren't in the history books that are now acknowledged, but uh, they, were, they were hidden. And I used fiction to kind of bring them to life. Um, and other other stories uh, that uh, around our state that appear in my collection, uh, maybe not of that politically charged variety, but uh, they are things that might go unsaid if they weren't told in a literary way. Hmm. So, the, you know, I, I do love the the, the the genre of short stories and. Uh, Again, I hope uh, I hope that people will enjoy reading the the ones I put out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, look. I mean, I guess the the theme here, in some ways, is we're always just kind of on journeys of self discovery and kind of looking for our own hidden histories to, to fictionalize in one way, shape, or form. Um, Dr. Kelman, Jordan, uh, and Jim, thanks for joining me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Christian. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana have been author Jim Lambert and Jordan Kelman. Dean of the UL College of Liberal Arts. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRVS. And you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Jim and Jordan by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. And you can find and subscribe to that podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Aster Morgan, and you can find more of Aster's photos at astermorgan.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Today's show was engineered by Kieran McIntosh, and our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis, and I'm Christian Mater. I'm editor of the current Lafayette's nonprofit news outlet for stories deeper than the headlines. Head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette. 
Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.